LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. My name is Greg Moffat and it is my pleasure to welcome back John Michael Greer uh, to discuss his book, The Ecotechnic Future. Uh, which is something of a sequel to his earlier work, The Long Descent. Now, while The Long Descent sets out why our oil field industrial age is coming to an end, the ecotechnic future attempts to envision the world of the future and how, or even if, the human race can get there. John's a certified master conserver, organic gardener and scholar of ecological history. He's the current Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, and his widely cited blog, The Archdruid Report, that's thearchdruidreport.blogspot.com, deals with peak oil, amongst many other issues. Uh, if you haven't already listened to my previous interview with John, uh, you can find a link to it on the page for this interview. Or if you're listening to this perhaps as an MP3 or on a third-party website, simply go to legalizefreedom.com, that's legalize-freedom.com, go to the tag cloud and click on John Michael Greer. Well, hello and welcome, John, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Right. Now, uh, in our first interview um, a few months back, we discussed your book, uh, The Long Descent, and today we're going to um, go over some of the main themes in the book you did after that, which is The Ecotechnic Future, and it's a sort, mm -hmm. of, a, sort of a sequel in a way, mm -hmm. uh, and it leads on from it. And I've recommended that people listen to the first interview we did uh, together just to sort of get themselves in the frame, as it were. Um, but a basic synopsis of the situation I set out in The Long Descent is that um, <clears throat> the industrialized society that many parts of the world um, currently enjoys, the lifestyle associated with it, that that's going away because it's not sustainable. Uh, we're, we're completely dependent on oil. Um, there's getting harder to find oil in the future. That's only going to uh, that situation is only going to get worse. So basically, it's industrial society is going away, and that's what the long descent is all about. But going away in a gradual process, not the kind of overnight Hollywood catastrophe that most people think is the only possible alternative to continued process. You know, it's yeah. it's a matter of decline, a word that you literally never hear these days when people think about the future. No, no, they they don't. I mean, if um, if anything, it's just sort of been almost wiped from the the, the discussion dictionary. But mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in the ecotechnic future, you then attempt to say, okay, we're facing a long grinding, um, you know, collapse of mm -hmm. the erosion of the oil based economy and society. Mm -hmm. So then, what what's going to happen? And you've discovered that well, it's very difficult to tell because that the future is so shrouded in, in sort of mist, as it were. But you've attempted mm -hmm. to set out some scenarios, some things that you think, are, I, I think this is definitely going to happen here, some things that may happen. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a, a broad spectrum of things, really. It's not, um, you, you've admitted 
you know, from the outset, you know, this is not a book that tells you what the future is going to be like. It's just trying to trying to have a look and see what could be out there. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that well, one of the things that has to be remembered in dealing with with any kind of future situation is that there are things you can know about the future. Um, I mean, you can you can be pretty you can be pretty safe in assuming that, for example, the laws of nature are not going to be suddenly stood on their head. We are not going to get an infinite amount of oil out of a finite planet, uh, and, and so on. We can go through the laws of thermodynamics and their impact on energy, and there's a range of other things. So there are certain things we can be fairly confident of. There are other things where it's more a matter of looking at, okay, what has happened in the past when other societies have been in this same in the same predicament? Because we are not the first civilization to you know, to overshoot the limits of its resource base, not by a long shot. We are the largest. We have had the most extravagant resource base to overshoot. We've done things with it that other societies have not. Okay, granted, but that doesn't that difference in scale doesn't necessarily amount to difference in kind. And so we can look at what's happening. We can look at elements of our current experience that have followed the the sort of standard pattern of um, of societies in overshoot and say, okay, well we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, like the Mayans, like the Romans, and so on down the road. What's the next step? Where does it where does it generally go from here? And say, okay, you know, that seems to be where we're headed to. And then, of course, there's the speculative stuff. There's the okay, what are the possibilities? Um, what are the options? The things we can't know in advance because they depend on on contingent factors. They depend on the choices made by individuals and groups that that can't be anticipated in advance. Now, for um, a lot of people still getting most of their information from the mainstream media and from oh, main, mainstream politics and what have you. They, they still have a, a view of the future um, that's essentially optimistic, even with everything that's happening in the world today, because that's what they're still being fed. It's almost like, mm-hmm. um, you know, yes, there's you know, problems, uh, you know, multiple problems across multiple fronts, but ultimately the people in control know what they're doing. The scientists, the politicians, Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. look away here. Nothing to see. We'll manage everything, but it's it's all going to work out. We're going to go rising onward and upward to some glorious Star Trek future. Yeah. Well, to put it in perspective and to get people thinking, if they are of that mindset, to get them maybe thinking differently, I'd just like to quote something from the introduction um, mm-hmm. to the Ecotechnic Future. Just a short paragraph, um, if you will. Only a few decades ago, a galaxy of scientific pundits and media figures regaled an eager public with images of what the year 2000 would be like. There would be bases on the moon and a big wheel-shaped space station in orbit with scheduled flights arriving there from Cape Canaveral twice a day. Undersea cities would dot the continental shelves and harvest the supposedly limitless resources of the sea. Clothing would be disposable and food would be synthesized on demand. Fusion reactors would turn out limitless cheap power, geodesic domes would sprout everywhere, and commuters would travel from lush suburbs to climate-controlled cities by helicopter instead of by car. Now, we can kind of chuckle at that and say, oh, yes, you know, they did kind of get it a bit wrong, didn't they, in the 60s and 70s. But as you point out, these sort of things were said with complete seriousness, even though some of the technology maybe didn't exist yet, some of it was just nascent if the future wasn't going to be exactly like that, it was going to be of that order. And for those people still wondering about the projections that you have for industrial society that you've laid out, well, the present we are living in now was the future once, and it hasn't worked out the way it was supposed to be. So mm-hmm. we're we're mm-hmm. already in the cycle of decline. Yeah. If you 
If you look at the future that, I mean, I, I turned 50 this year. When I was growing up, we were supposed to have this, this you know, glorious high-tech future. It isn't here. Compared to that, we've already declined. We don't have the, you know, the big wheel-shaped space stations. We don't have the regular flights to the moon. We don't have any of the things that every reasonable person, every, every significant pundit in 1950 and 1960 was sure we would have by this time. So you look at the gap between the expectation and the reality, where are we? We're in an overcrowded, um, you know, troubled, environmentally, seriously in a state of crisis planet. Um, we have way too many people. We are running short on a whole range of resources. Many of the great triumphs that everybody assumed were in the bag have never happened. We can talk about fusion power sometime if you want a really embarrassing story about that. And you know, there are all of these things. They haven't happened. We've actually plateaued and are on the way down at this point. And yet people insist, no, 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 we, we, you know, it'll all work out onward and upward, you know, new technological trinkets every year and, and all the stuff that kind of fills the inside of people's heads. And that's partly because the media and the politicians are blathering it, but the media and the politicians get their ideas from somewhere too. This is our collective consciousness. This is the mindset we have because progress is our religion. Progress is the thing that people put their trust in, the way medieval peasants put their trust in you know, God and his saints. And the idea that progress may have ended in our lifetimes, that progress may be over for the foreseeable future, by which I'm speaking anything up to thousands of years, is as unimaginable to most people today as, as again, a medieval peasant looking up at the sky and suddenly realizing that God and his saints and angels aren't there anymore. Well, quite, and the... Although um, there's such sort of mindless optimism uh, of the past of the moon tourism and the deep sea bases is largely gone, um, there's still a belief that there's only one direction for us to go in, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's this upward arc. And you know, mm-hmm. great store is placed on our ability to on technology and on our ability to to innovate, but uh, we are seeing stagnation in. Technology. All right. I mean, I, I agree that some of the developments in computing and quantum computing oh, sure. are, are just are just staggering. But the bottom line is that they are still all completely dependent on oil, and that mm-hmm. we can no longer rely on technology and innovation to keep getting us out of jams. Exactly. Technology is not energy. And this is the thing. People say, "Well, we have technology." Okay, what powers the technology? Our technological structure, this whole baroque complexity can simply be described as a way to, to work off the, the, the energy differential between fossil fuels and deep space, basically. It's, we, we produce heat, we turn it into various kinds of energy, um, you know, whether electricity or mechanical energy, what have you, we use it up, the heat eventually radiates off into space. That's all it is. It's a way of burning energy. It's a way of burning energy at fantastically extravagant levels, but that's all it is. Our ingenuity does not create the energy. Our ingenuity does not trump the laws of thermodynamics and the assumption that everybody makes, well, they'll find something. When you run out of oil, that's okay. We'll start using dilithium crystals or something like that. It's, it's again, it's, it's an act of blind faith. And it's an act, it's a faith that has been contradicted over and over and over again in the last 15, 60 years as one you know, glorious new energy future or another has crashed to the ground. Now, just a small side point, something's popped into my head I just wanted to address, and I, I, I'm kind of anticipating your reply on this one, but 
Um, I was listening to American radio talk show host Alex Jones recently, and Mm -hmm. um, he had a guy on, and they were discussing a concept called abiotic oil. Oh, man. Yeah, and I thought so. But just <laughs> it's just something that other people may come across, and mm, okay. I thought we, we, could, we could address it. The basic concept seems to me is that the idea that oil is generated inside the earth, that mm-hmm. the earth produces oil on an ongoing basis, and therefore it will never run out. Is this, a kind, this is a kind of blue-sky, desperate thinking, is it? It's, it's what it is, it's cargo cult thinking. Um, those, those are our listeners who don't know the fine details of that. Um, after World War II... In a lot, on a number of Pacific islands, people who had seen all of these airplanes suddenly landing and GIs pile out and, and you know, all kinds of goods and stuff that could be traded in this, uh, you know. And, and for the years of the war, a lot of these islands had this immense economic boom because they had all these GIs here, they had all this, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the, something changed that they were never really told about. And the airplanes flew away, and the ships went away, and the GIs went away, and there they were. And so what happened was that a lot of these people figured, okay, I, I, I think we need to build some airstrips. If we build airstrips, the planes will start coming again. Okay. Mm. Abiotic oil is exactly that kind of thinking. The science has been debunked over and over again. It's, it's, it's simply nonsense. Okay. Um, any... Any, cap- any competent geologist can look at oil and tell you what, you know, what age of the life form, what age of life forms gave rise to it, the, ke- the chemical composition, the strata. Below a certain depth, you don't get oil at all. What you get is natural gas because it's too hot. The oil breaks down. All of this is very straightforward stuff, but the fantasy that um, there has to be more, that there has to be limitless supplies. You know, anytime you hear the word limitless, what that means is that somebody has stopped thinking. I think it was mm. Garrett Hardened. You know, words like infinite, limitless, eternal, all of those actually mean I don't want to think about it. Because, you know, the Earth is a finite planet. I, I, I can, I'm quite convinced that, that most of our listeners have seen pictures of the Earth from orbit, okay? I am quite convinced that none of them have seen a pipeline from Neptune refilling the oil that we're taking out of the planet. And, and so this whole fantasy that a finite planet must have infinite energy is pure denial. It's pure evasion of the simple reality of limits. Now, over the years, excuse me, I've taken a great interest in what's loosely called um, uh, free energy. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a great, uh, you know, many fields of research out there, uh, Mm -hmm. people working on, uh, you know, energy from the zero point field. And, you know, what that boils down to, is I think is basically energy from almost nothing. The idea mm-hmm. being that the, you know that the the entire universe is energy, so there should be a way that we can tap into this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of speculation surrounding why none of the alternative or free energy technologies have ever come to anything mm-hmm. uh, is because well, the oil companies, the you know that 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 sort of strata of society that controls Them. everything is set. Them, against they've them. got to be stopping it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, you know, the men in black and all the rest of it. So ha- have you ever come across anything uh, in the free energy realm, any researchers? Because there's a broad spectrum of people there from, you know, quite eminent and seemingly very serious people through to, to, to cranks. Have you mm-hmm. seen anything there that you think holds any potential uh, for helping us in the future? Most of the free energy um, systems that I've seen 
are basically complicated complicated rings of changes on the same mistakes as perpetual motion. They're, they're typically using non-mechanical means to do it, but it's the same set of mistakes. The laws of thermodynamics, which are the gold standard of physics, as, as uh, Arthur Eddington, the great physicist, said, they're the one things you can trust when everything else deserts you. Um, by the laws of ther thermodynamics, those things can't work. Okay? Mm -hmm. it, it really is that simple. And... Uh, you know, if somebody wants to provide a um, a demonstration model, not one that's going to be in six months from now, or or here are some videos on YouTube or what have you, but an actual model that skeptical researchers can pick up, take apart, put together, and run, then I'll reconsider that. But until that happens, it's more lullabies, it's more denial, it's more attempt. No, no, no. We've got to have all the energy. Well, the universe is obligated to give us as much energy as we happen to want if we simply whine loud enough. The, the, there's this sense of middle-class entitlement that pervades modern society, the idea that there must be whatever we want if we simply make enough noise. And I, I've really become convinced that a lot of, whether it's the, the zero-point energy stuff or the, the, the latest round of the cold fusion furor, a.k.a. low-energy nuclear, nuclear reactions, um, or, or what have you, the abiotic oil, there's an endless number of excuses for convincing ourselves that limits aren't real, that we don't have to abide by the limits of the finite planet. Mm -hmm. And all of them, all of them serve a very powerful emotional purpose. They allow us to deny an unwelcome reality. But that, that, that purpose, that, that pursuit of delusion, is closing the door to any kind of constructive future we might have. And the longer people pursue it, the worse the future is going to be. Mm. Uh, now, despite what I was saying earlier on about um, the, you know, the great mass of society still mm -hmm. still having a fundamental optimism in the sense that they believe that you know overall humanity is on an upward arc and uh, you mm -hmm. know there there will be less people starving in Africa every year and eventually we'll all get to a better standard of everything despite we will all be living in suburbs yeah One exactly planet of suburbs with with big screen TVs for all <laughs> yeah and, and that you know it may t it may take time it's going to be a bit of a rockier road than we thought but ultimately that's where we're going now despite that I have noticed and it is palpable Mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a gloom and an uncertainty, mm -hmm. cre even creeping into mm -hmm. the most, mm -hmm. you know, the most mindless uh, media pundits. That just, well, yeah, actually, we are do have quite a lot of problems on quite a lot of fronts now, and maybe that isn't mm -hmm. going to work out. And I noticed it particularly since nine eleven. Now, people mm -hmm. might be thinking, why has he mentioned nine eleven here? Well, I don't know. I, I would say that nine eleven, in a way, was somewhat related to what we're discussing, the energy situation, in as mm -hmm. much that the neocons in America, the project for a new American century, and everything that's happened in the Middle East before and since, because whatever you believe about 9-11, it was related to the Middle East. And that what's gone on in the Middle East, even since Gulf War One and before that, has been basically one big resource grab oh, yeah. tied to oil. So in a way, you can see that as related. But I, I think that the changes that have taken place in the world since 9-11, and they've been quite far-reaching, they've affected all of us, that it, it has changed people's overall demeanor Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, the, the thing the thing to keep in mind is that it was a little after that. It was in 2004 that global oil production reached its current plateau, and it's been stuck there ever since. Before then, oil, with with the exception of the, with the exception of a drop after the great conservation campaigns of the 1970s, oil production had been an upward climb, gunning the world's economy, increasing the total amount of of, of wealth available to the industrial societies. At that point, 
we hit a ceiling. We hit, in fact, peak oil. The actual peak of conventional petroleum production was probably in 2005. And so one of the reasons that I think the mood is shifting is that it's really beginning to percolate through, even on an, on an unnoticed, almost unconscious level, that things are no longer getting better, not just you know, here and there, but broadly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's what happens when a religion, again, progress is our religion, when a religion starts to fail. We saw this in the collapse of communism, the long period where, the, the, you know, people kept on mouthing the slogans, but increasingly nobody believed it anymore because the glorious people's, you know, republic under communism was not showing up. The state was not withering away, quite the contrary. It was this, this you know, metastatic, pervasive, bureaucratic mess. And, you know, all of these glorious vistas and, you know, <laughs> comes the revolution, we will all these strawberries and cream, all that mm-hmm. stuff was becoming harder and harder and harder for people to believe until eventually it reached the point that not even the people who were preach, who were, you know, uh, ranting the slogans of the May Day parades believed in it at all. And then it took one, you know, one hard push and it started going to bits. Mm-hmm. I think we're facing the same thing. We're not there yet. We're not, we're not to the, the, you know, the crumbling of the Berlin Wall of progress, but, um, but we're headed that way because the, the prophecies, the, the, you know, the glorious people's, uh, you know, people's republic of progress is not showing up. Mm-hmm. For most people, I don't, I don't know how things are doing on your side of the pond, for most people in America, the standard of living has actually been contracting since the 1970s. Well, I mean, there's a point I was going to come on to later on, mm-hmm. but... Um... Uh, our, our generation. Oh, I'm. You said you just turned fifty. Oh, I, I'm in my early forties, and um, mm-hmm. we'll have discussions with uh, the generation, my parents' generation, people of that mm-hmm. age, uh, especially those that are uh, actually part of the family circle and what have you. And mm-hmm. we, we all know each other well. And this idea that they're still trying to wrap their heads around the fact that uh, we're not doing as well as they did at that, at, <laughs> when when they were our stage of life, and because when they were. You know, just one generation ahead of us when they were middle-aged. I don't like that phrase, but we all understand what it means. You know, mm-hmm. they, they had their houses paid off. They had a couple mm-hmm. of cars. You know, maybe all the kids were in college. Um, they, they were looking back at their own parents and saying, well, I'm doing better than mom and dad did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now you're looking at, now they're looking at you and going, we're, we did better than our children. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. In the United States, it's a very regional thing. Now, I happen to live in a part of the country that is, that's been economically depressed since the 70s, and that was partly a deliberate choice. It's, you know, it's, if, you're gonna, if you're expecting to go through a, a prolonged economic contraction, it's nice to live, with pe- live around people who know how to handle that. Mm. But there are very large sections of the United States where all the industries collapsed decades ago, where jobs have been scarce for a very long time, where standards of living have been going down steeply for years, I live in one of them. There are many, many others. Other parts of the country had that final boom in the 1980s and 1990s, which was very localized here. It was very much along the coasts and in a few other areas. And that boom is now collapsing. And another generation that, was, that, that grew up um, looking back and saying, wow, you know, yes, I, my, my parents worked in, you know, worked in factories, and I've got this high-tech job. I make much more money than they do. And look at all these cute little gimmicks that I have all of a sudden the bottom's falling out of their lifestyle too. And so, you know, there's nothing like prolonged economic contraction to, to make people wake up to the fact that maybe all those gleaming images 
of, of the glorious future we're all going to have are in fact nonsense. Yeah, well, I've got the two-pronged assault of, uh, well, it's not really coming from the family side, no, but for a long time it was, um, you don't have a pension, you know, you, you must save for your retirement sort of thing. And then you have the uh, financial sector, all, you know, who are trying to sell you something saying, mm-hmm. oh, you're at such and such an age, it is imperative that you put, you know, $300 a month aside for the next 25 years. And, you know, a lot of people go, we don't have that money to start with. People, don't, people don't have that money, exactly. And, and the thing is, I think most of us know that that money put aside is probably not going to be there by the time we retire. With and, and if it is there, the likelihood that it's going to be worth much of anything is fairly low. Oh, don't even get me started on economics. I mean, that's a whole yeah, other thing. You we, know. we could we could have a long conversation about that. In fact, I may have my publisher send send you a copy of my book on economics. But but yeah, um, there's that whole tangle of expectations and delusions, and you know we can we can retire and then run off. You know, in our case, to Florida. In your case, to Spain, or what have you, and sit in the sun. That's not going to happen. No. no. I don't ever expect to retire. Most people in my generation will not retire. And the ones coming after me, they'll, work, they'll have to work till they die. Yeah, I mean, and to, 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 uh, you know, on the positive side, for my part, you know, I try to help people with this and I see other people doing the same. And there is a, a little cottage industry growing up around this now that once you, if you accept the possibility of not retiring, it then switches your focus and go, okay, what am I doing today? Am I doing something meaningful today? Am I enjoying my life today? Not, uh-huh. am, am I going to work? Because like, like I saw my um, my my mom's sister's um, husband, well, my uncle, basically, um, mm-hmm. that guy who, who he was in the uh, Air Force um, after mm-hmm. the war, and then he got out and they had some skills. He, ran, he built up a successful business. He ran it. He worked hard. Oh, God, they worked hard sacrifice he opened a factory he employed loads of people he did good but he never had time really for himself or his family but Mm -hmm. they had a plan he was going to retire they were going to sell up the factory and that was it and he hadn't retired i don't know how months and the guy was six feet under you know (laughs) yeah so and because he basically worked himself so hard, so he that, worked you know, himself to death. Yeah, yeah, and that's why a lot of people have got that model of like you know just get to college, get a good job, or if you don't get to college, get a skill, become a plumber, whatever. And the idea was to work for retirement. And if that is going away, then it can be a positive thing. And in some of the ways you allude to some of this in the ecotechnic future, you start to say mm. that the future would be uncertain. It could be very different. There may be challenges, but there are positives in all of this as well. There are potential positives as long as we start by accepting the actual limits and, and crucially embracing the fact that people in the future, including you and me, it's, it should, you know, as, as we live into that future, we're not going to have the material abundance that we're used to. That simply isn't going to happen. It's not on the cards. And so that being the case, it's, you know, it, it would be a really good idea to look at some of the other ways to the one can you know, direct one's energy and spend one's time rather than building up vast amounts of stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Am I right in thinking, because um, I, <clears throat> I don't actually know a great deal about your personal background, but mm-hmm. have you always lived a lifestyle, you know, relatively modest and frugal? Has that been part of your makeup since you know, all your life? Or did you go through a different life phase where maybe you had more stuff and more money and a different job? And 
No, no, quite the contrary. I grew I grew up in the 1970s. That was that was my coming of age, um, in the age of of oil crises, in the age of back to the land, all of these sort of um, appropriate technology stuff. I was deeply into that. When in 1980, when I went away to college, that's where I planned on making my career. You know, building windmills and designing solar houses and things like that. Mm. And of course, the market dropped out of that in the face of the Reagan Thatcher counter revolution. You know, it's over here. Was it's morning in America, and we don't have to. We don't have to conserve. We don't have to save. We don't have to be prudent. We can have one last grand blowout, burn up our future and crash. That that was, of course, not the way it was presented, but that was what it amounted to. Mm-hmm. And so, many, many, many people that I knew who had been, you know, saying prattling the same slogans about conservation, give a hoot, don't pollute, all that stuff. Um, shamefacedly slunk away and you know became yuppies, <laughs> mm. and you know got corporate jobs and this kind of stuff. But I I don't know. Maybe it was just my my innate stubbornness. Maybe it was that I didn't want a corporate job. That that the yuppie lifestyle seemed just unbelievably boring to me. But I'm one of, I'm one of the few who actually stuck with it. It it didn't hurt that I wanted to become a writer. And if you're going to be a writer, you're going to spend a, a long time being very poor. That was just baked in, baked into the cake. So, um, so you know, I was still like weather stripping and you know, um, my my windows and things when energy was cheap because it might be cheap for for a yuppie, but it wasn't cheap for me. Mm-hmm. And and so my wife and I simply you know she she had very similar ideas and she also came her her parents she was a late child and her parents grew up during the Great Depression so she'd grown up with all of these practical skills. And all of this this childhood instruction, you, you have to conserve, you have to save, you have to, you know, make sure that you're not going to be caught by, by yet another economic downturn. There's a whole generation that was very deeply into that. But, so we basically always kept a, a, very, a very frugal lifestyle. I've never owned a car. I've never had a driver's license. That was originally part of the whole 70s, no, no, I'm not going to pollute. Then it became a matter of financial necessity, and later on it was just a matter of, well, why bother? I don't need one of those things, and I certainly don't need the expenses involved. So basically, I I always did that. Mm. Yeah, well, as you say, couple that with living in the sort of region of the U.S. that you do, uh, Mm. that's probably a good thing, really, because it's kind of, okay, well, um, I can see what's coming down the line. And everyone mm-hmm. else is going to go off in the meantime and have a huge party. But you know, mm-hmm. once once the hangover clears, I'll still be here. <laughs> well, well, actually, back in those days, I lived in Seattle, which was very much a high tech boom town. Mm-hmm. We only moved out into the into the in, into the Rust Belt about three years ago. It was a good move, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was very much a matter of oh boy, they are not going to like the hangover of this one. Mm. <laughs> Now, in the first part of the book, you call it uh, orientations, and it kind of does what it says. And uh, just quote here, it puts the decline and fall of the industrial age into the context of human ecology. Mm-hmm. And certainly anybody, whatever you think about our energy situation, recognizes that in terms of ecology, we have a bit of a, and arguably have had for a very long time, if not forever, a fatal imbalance uh, mm-hmm. between uh, you know humans and the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a little more complex than that because what typically, and this is this is actually a point that I, that I make in the book, what typically happens with any any new species, any new human ecology, any environmental arrangement, it emerges, 
it's very unstable at first because all the various pieces sort of have to shuffle and adjust and everything, and then gradually it works its way down to stability. Human beings were a very disruptive force when we first entered the, eco, you know, the, the global ecosystem what, a million years ago or something like that. Um, but the ecosystem adjusted and so did we. So we reached the point of you know, hunter-gatherer cultures that were supremely adapted to their environments. After that, there were some new um, human ecologies created gradually over the time. There was the, there was the, you can't really call it farming, but the gardening, the sort of tribal horticulture ecology, where you have mixed, uh, mixed crop gardens and small things. That involves certain transformation. There was the emergence of the nomadic herding economy, another very important hu human adaptation. That caused a lot of transformations, and then things settled down. Those two, those two have been around for a long time. And they, again, went through those initial perturbations and then settled down to stability. Agriculture, same thing. When agriculture first came out, it was a very disruptive, very destructive thing, and it tended to cause, among other things, human societies to boom and crash fairly quickly. Again, it was a matter of working out the bugs. Actually, in our lifetimes, we've seen the final steps in that process with the emergence of methods of organic agriculture that are sustainable over the indefinite future, building on things that were being done in Asia, things that were being done in the, in the, in the Mediterranean region, and so on. But then there's the industrial system, which came on the scene only 300 years ago, an eye blink of evolutionary time, and is going through its initial wham, wham, wham perturbations. The problem there, of course, is that it's based on an incredibly finite resource. And so instead of coming down to stability, what we're having is, you know, boom, crash. And then we get to see if we can piece anything together in the future from the pieces based on the much more limited energy and resources we'll have at that time. Well, yeah, and, and talking about the about history and, uh, you know, thousands of years of it, um, do we have the evidence of, of collapsed civilizations from the past, which um, we could probably learn a great deal from, and I know you mentioned this earlier, and it's something you addressed, I think, in a recent blog post um, I, I address it all the time. It's it's one of one of my major one of my major arguing points is that the great problem, probably the single biggest barrier to our, our coming to a sane response to our own future, is that everybody insists that the present has nothing to learn from the past. Hmm. Well, and, sorry. Go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, no I'm, I'm, <laughs> go ahead. I was simply going to say that you know people that quite often are you know consciously not looking back because they you know it's it's the lessons are too stark really you know mm -hmm. mm. they're stark in one way but there's there's another very important thing and and I don't know if you're getting any of this in, in over on your side of the pond but here the whole um 2012 apocalypse thing has become a major issue there are, um, I mean, people, people are calling into suicide hotlines, you know, trying to talk themselves out of killing themselves before the world ends, and things like that. It's, it's becoming a major issue. And so there's that, again, we're stuck in that, that there's that, that dualism, that, that two-possibility image where indefinite progress or sudden overnight catastrophe are the only two things people are, mm. are able to think about. And so one of the great lessons that is taught by the, the rise and fall of civilizations in the past is that been here, done that, you know, use the T-shirt to clean up the ruins, okay? Hmm. This is not new. This is not unique. It may be very difficult, but it's not the end of the world. 
Okay. Now, that in itself is actually very troubling to a lot of people because partly we have this sort of collective egotism of our society. We have to be, you know, the, the ultimate what's it. We have to achieve things and do things. And, and you know, the history, history, history fixates on us. Therefore, our collapse has to be more dramatic than any other, in, you know, that sort of nonsense. And there are also people who are looking at the prospect of a long, slow decline um, and the, the sort of crises and contractions and economic trouble and so on. And I'm quite convinced that a lot of people are looking at that and saying, could we please just get it over with? Yeah, I mean, because now? it's like the difference between, you know, having a long debilitating disease uh -huh. and just, you know, getting knocked down by a bus or something. A lot of people would choose the, the latter. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. it, re it reminds me of a book which you may well have read because this is very much our era called Make Room, Make Room. Uh, oh, which, yeah, Harry Harrison. That's, that's right. Trouble. And it was later made into a, a film called um, Soylent Green with, Green with Charlie Heston. Soylent Green is people! Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that, of course, wasn't in the book. but uh, No, but it was in the movie. It was a great line. It was, it was, wasn't it? That was, the big, that was the big spoiler alert kind of you know thing. But uh, for people who don't know the book, it's basically a typical dystopian kind of environmental disaster type end of the 20th century. Like a lot of books that were written in the 70s and, and earlier. It was set at the end of the 20th century and everything in society had reached a crisis point and it was just overpopulation, starvation, mm -hmm. riots, you know, environmental collapse, you name it, it was all going wrong. And towards mm -hmm. the end of the book, it's 1999, it's coming round to, to midnight, so it's finally going to transition into 2000 and people, oh, what's going to happen? You know, and that was the general, you know, the feeling again, here we go. And we remember that laterally mm -hmm. when it actually happened with the Y2K thing. But in the book, Nothing, you know, midnight chimes, uh, December 31st, 1999, and nothing changes. And nothing and, changed. Yeah. yeah, and the protagonists are kind of like, no, something's just got to change. We can't go on that. And they were just waiting for something. Things were so bad, they couldn't contemplate that the world they were in, which had just gone to shit, was going to mm -hmm. carry on gradually getting worse. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a really scary prospect, and that's why I think so many people are desperately chasing after either, um, you know, d denial games like um, you know the the abiotic oil business on the one hand, or get it over with now. You know, let, let's 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 see the world crash into ruin in the next fifteen minutes, so I don't have to deal with what happens next. And I think also there's a kind of perverse egotism in all of this, the, because so many of these, these, these sort of apocalyptic fantasies we have are ways of glorifying humanity. We're so powerful we can destroy the earth. We're so important that the earth is going to, you know, the universe is going to squash us to get rid of us. Uh, the Mayans predicted this millions of years ago. Well, the Mayans weren't around millions of years ago, but you won't know that from hearing some of the, the jabber <laughs> did. Um, you know, the, everything focuses on us. We are the generation. We are the ones, you know, the, the entire pivot of, of earthly history is us. It's all egotism. Mm. And, well, I mean, and in, in fact, you know, we're just another generation. We're kind of a very large generation, and that's in the process of fixing itself the hard way. And life goes on. Yeah, and as you know, if you say 1999, Y2K came and went. Uh, mm -hmm. 2012, which uh, well, wasn't widely hyped really, and that didn't really start until you know relatively recent times. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's well, you know, we'll see. I, I've been, I'm very much one of these people who says, you know, I don't believe anything. I either know something mm -hmm. or I don't. And I, I don't know if anything related to anything related to 2012 is going to affect us this year. But, you know, mm -hmm. ask, ask me next year and I'll tell mm -hmm. you. 
So, assuming we make it through this year, the, the next date, I'm looking to a 2060 cult, because I don't know if you've heard of Isaac Newton. Who was, who oh, yeah, yeah. Isaac Newton said, no, not before 2060. Mm. Um, the, there, there's a claim that the Aztec calendar ends, and I think it's 2043 or something like that. Uh, I think it's nonsense, but that didn't stop the, the 2012 thing. The Mayans, by the way, did not predict anything for 2012. Mm. That whole thing was made up out of whole cloth. Um, by Jose Arguelles, um, partly influenced by a misunderstanding of the Mayan calendar, and partly influenced by Terence McKenna's drug trips, mm-hmm. and you know, and he he basically created this thing and marketed it, and was was fortunate in some sense fortunate enough not to live to see the whole thing flop. I, you know, if he, it is possible, I think, as I mentioned earlier, to know some things about the future. When somebody insists that a speculative bubble is going to keep on going up forever, whether it's in high-tech stocks or in real estate, or as we have now in, in you know, um, fracking rights for, for you know, um, fracked gas or all these kind of things, you know, you actually do know in advance that that bubble is eventually going to pop and there's going to be a crash. Mm. And there are very straightforward reasons to know that. I would argue that we could also know that when somebody's going, oh, this vast transformation is going to happen on such and such a date, and, and what's afterward is whatever my favorite fantasy happens to be. Yes. Because that's usually what it amounts to. Whether that fantasy is peace and love and enlightenment, or blazing away at full auto at a, you know, hordes of advancing zombies, whatever it is, 2012 has become this, this sort of uh, Rorschach blot of time under which people project those fantasies. And I think it's quite possible to look at that, look at the fantasy projection, look at the manufacture of the bogus prophecy and say, no, nothing is going to happen. My blog, in fact, for well, since, since December 21st of last year, has been having an end of the world of the week. At, a, at the end of every blog, where I've talked about a previous set of apocalyptic prophecies that fell flat. There are plenty of them. I will not run out in the, in the year that I'll be talking about this. Not, not by a long shot. Mm. Well, that's quite instructive in itself. Well, another part of uh, which you've, the territory you've strayed onto there, the mm-hmm. other side of the apocalypse coin, I suppose, is the idea of the uh, evolutionary leap or the shift in human consciousness. <laughs> which we, uh-huh. we've been hearing a great deal about increasingly so, and, and obviously that's reached something of a, um, a fever pitch in 2012. Uh-huh. Um, but this is something, again, if we look in the past, that not only were there other societies um, predicting apocalypses that never came, there were also other individuals, groups, movements, who said there was mm-hmm. going to be some kind of uh, shift in human consciousness or even bodily shift or mm-hmm. into another density or whatever it happens to be. And I've, I've read a lot of this sort of stuff and... You know, I, I really want it to be true. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's lovely. But, yeah, I mean, back in the, in the 1960s, um, it was uh, Charles Reich, The Greening of America. Then it was, uh, what's her name, with the Aquarian Conspiracy. Then it was the, um, what was it, the Cultural Creatives. And, uh, now most of those have, uh, these recent ones have one thing in common, which is that the baby boom generation over here has an absolute obsession with the thought that it is the most important generation that's ever lived and will believe anything and anyone who tells it that. There's that, again, that vast sense of, in, of yuppie entitlement. But if, if I may speak briefly from a spiritual standpoint, transformation in consciousness happens when indivi- to individuals on an individual level when they themselves work to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and that's why 
all of this blather about you know this vast change in consciousness that is going to make everybody agree with well whoever's speaking is nonsense. What they're saying is we don't want to do the spiritual work necessary to bring about the change of consciousness in ourselves. We don't want to go through the hard process of teaching other people why it matters. No, no, no. The Space Brothers will take care of it, or Gaia will take care of it, or some undisclosed, you know, uh, whatchamacallit field. Will, something else will do the work for us. We don't have to. Hmm. It's been tried over and over again, the same prophecies retailed for, for you know, centuries, and it doesn't work. There again, you know, uh, December 22nd, 2012, I think we're going to find that everybody is in the same state of consciousness they were, except for those who are actually getting up their duff and doing the spiritual work necessary to transform themselves. Yeah. And well, they, will, they will have made one day of further progress. That's a, that is a key point, because even though we can perhaps look at some of the talk of consciousness shifts and what have you, and, you know, our benevolent alien brothers and all the rest of it, and think that, you know, this is not going to happen. If people, if you, I, and great numbers of people start to think and therefore act, behave differently, that we can change things. And in fact, we could argue that in order to to make the future as good as it can be for all of us and the people who come mm -hmm. after us, we, we do need to think differently and act differently. And we can to we, take we somewhat, to what, something like what David, yeah. people like David Icke and Eckhart Tolle are saying. You know, to, we can't actually become something along the lines of what they're saying, but we have to become it. We have to be we it. We can't just wait we have, for it to happen. We, yeah, we can't just wait for someone to do it. Um, the you know the the what the, the one who is to come is always already here. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's and it's in each of us. You know, the possibility is always right here, right now. But it takes work. It mm -hmm. takes steady, hard work. And it also takes a willingness to give up some things because you can't really effectively mix um, a life of spiritual transformation and a life of you know constant egotistical chasing after um, sensation and money and goodies. The two don't work well together. They, they conflict in a number of, of ways that have been discussed over the last umpty thousand years by how many spiritual teachers? Hmm. And so if you want to have that life of, you know, of fast cars and, and fast chicks and, and whatever else, that's fine. If that's what you want, have it. You know, pursue it with all your heart. But you won't be able to do that and still have, um, you know, still undergo the spiritual transformations that I think we all know we need. On the other hand, if you want to pursue the spiritual transformations, if you want to wake yourself yourself up, if you want to become what you have the the capability of being, you're not going to be you're not going to have the time, you're not going to have the option of pursuing the sort of wallowing in um, in the economy of abundance that so many people have done. Mm. And so it's a choice. And the problem is, I think, that everyone wants to have their planet and eat it too. They want to think of themselves as being ecologically sensitive and spiritually enlightened. And, you know, they're perfectly willing to spend endless amounts of money buying things to support that role, as long as it doesn't get in the way of buying lots of other stuff and, you know, having the, the, you know, the big house and the big mansion and the fast cars and the fast chicks and so on and so forth. It doesn't mm. work that way. <laughs> so, you know, if you're if you're going to stand with one foot on a boat and one foot on the dock, and the boat is pulling away from the dock, you either need to jump one way or the other, or you're going to land in the drink. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was having a 
uh, quite a heated discussion with a with an old friend of mine just a couple of days after 9/11 actually, mm-hmm. and um, he was reading something in the newspaper, uh, some statement from Osama bin Laden or the Taliban or whoever, and <clears throat> railing against Western um, hypocrisy and corruption mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. degradation of society and how our Western lifestyles were were going to go away and that it was where we were living was wrong and. Um, he, I, I quote from him, he remember just said to me, you know, what is the matter with these people? He said, the world has never been better. And I said, okay, I can understand what you mean. He's talking about what we talked about earlier, the, the gradual upward. You know, he's believing that living standards mm-hmm. for more and more people are increasing. But he said something to me recently, the last time I saw him actually, and it was along the lines of, he said, you know all this shit you always talk about? I think you're right. <laughs> and... What he basically meant was, okay, I get it now. And he's got he's got several children now, and I know he's mindful. He's a very good father, and he's mindful of this. And he's kind of realizing, yeah, you know what? Actually, the, all those guarantees, uh, the, all the stuff I benefited from, that our generation benefited from, and the guarantees we thought were there for the future, and my children, mm, they're not there anymore. They're not there anymore. And yeah, and the thing is, this this sort of realization, these little conversations happening in corners all over the industrial world, where people are looking at all of that quote nonsense unquote from the the age of the limits to growth and so on, um, and are saying, "Ouch, they're right." That actually is, I think, in many ways, the most hopeful sign I know. The other really hopeful sign, though, is listening to the recent torrent of denunciations of the idea. Of limits, the the people yelling their heads off in the mainstream media, especially over here. Although you you've got some of it on your side of the pond as well, um, insisting peak oil can't be real. There must be as much oil as we want. Here's the you know here's the Bakken shale. You know, the Bakken shale is overhyped, is massively overhyped. Mm. But you know here's this, here's that. We can we can keep on chugging away forever. George will, one of our one of our conservative pundits, had this this loud. Thing in, in somewhere other, I forget where it was, just a couple of days ago, in, insisting that the, the whole limits to growth thing disproved itself. I mean, we saw none of that stuff happen, da 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 da. This is also the guy who, who uh, just a few days before the Berlin Wall went down, insisted loudly in a, you know, in a column the Berlin Wall is not going down. Don't believe this, this glasnost of Perestroika stuff. <clears throat> So if George Will is now out there saying, um, peak, you know, the, the peak oil isn't real, the limits to growth aren't real, I give it a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. <clears throat> now, many people, if they have, uh, um, well, who amongst us really, maybe some you know, the people who are around during the times of the Great Depression are probably mostly mm-hmm. gone now. But mm-hmm. for most of us who have no real experience of, of collapse or of uh, backward steps, in standards mm-hmm. of living and and what have you and all the things that come you know with with, with health and uh, um, general mm-hmm. well-being and uh, material goods uh, they may kind of not notice some of the signs that are already here or they may misinterpret them based mm-hmm. on things they've read but some of the areas that you set out in the book uh, where we we are seeing effects and, and they're going to be the ones to watch for increasing in the future um, are areas such as depopulation uh, you know, all of these changes are going to affect the numbers of people on the earth. Migration. This is a you know mm-hmm. hot button topic, especially in the U.S. You know, with all those um, you know evil Mexicans coming in. <laughs> Actually, 
actually a very large number of the Mexicans are going home because the economy at home is better than it is here. Yeah, well, actually, that happened. It, that, that that happened here to an extent in the UK with a lot of people from Eastern Europe. Um, who, who, who are suddenly realizing that you know, there isn't there isn't the same disparity of wealth there used to be. No, but um, these great movements of people is certainly going to become one of the trends for the future. And uh, right. and as we carry on trashing the environment, I mean that's going mm -hmm. to have an effect. That's going to feed into the migration and depopulation. All nexus is together for you know a bit of a messy period ahead of us. Very much so. Mm. And also one of the particularly worrying. Uh, it's, it's kind of inevitable, but worrying in the sense of what could flow from it, what could happen as a result. You talk about the political system disintegrating and the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the polit politics becoming even more toxic than they already are now, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. cultural disintegration. That's you know, and we all know whatever we think culture is. For that to to begin to break down and in the long term, medium to long term, start to become lost as it loses its importance. You know, if people are focused on trying to survive, so. Perhaps you could say something about the, the political and cultural scenes in, in this respect. Okay. Well, we're having a very good example of, of that process over here in the United States right now because our political system is stuck. It is, it is in, in gridlock. There are basically the various political factions are all being rewarded by their constituents for not compromising. And so you have a situation where almost no change can actually happen in the political system. The, if the Republicans are for it, the Democrats are against it. If the Democrats are for it, the Republicans are against it. The only way you can get legislation through is if it is packed with, let's use the honest term, bribes to large wealthy industries. The, the recent healthcare fiasco currently lumbering through the courts is an, is an example of that. And, and so basically you've got a you've got a situation where the system's set up to respond to change which is what politics is about politics is the art of the possible it's the art of adjusting a society's responses to change no longer work you can't get constructive action through and so for example our presidents are always out there trying to do things in the foreign policy field because they can actually make something happen there They've, you know, they've, they've stretched and abused their constitutional authority to the point that nobody really notices when they're declaring war on other nations and invading this person, this place, and bombing that place. And they can at least savor that fantasy of having having some ability to affect the world. Whereas in the domestic scene, it's gridlocked. It's impossible to get much of anything to happen, and so. The ability of the system to adjust to impending changes, to impending troubles, is dropping rapidly to zero. And the worse it gets, the more stressed people get, the more intransigent the political, the political scene becomes. We, you know, arguably, we're going to reach a point where the, the federal government of the United States is incapable of effectively responding to anything on a domestic level. Because it's so wrapped up in politics that everyone's sniping at it from every level, and the capacity to make change becomes so diffuse that it's just—it's it, not—it's not functioning anymore. We're very nearly there. On a cultural level, America again is, is kind of the the poster child for that because our national culture, which didn't have a lot of time to develop out of the regional cultures of this of the settlement period was basically replaced by a manufactured corporate imitation starting in the in the middle years of the 20th century. It's not there. We don't have a culture. We have products. And so a lot of what's happening in America right now is people flailing around looking for the, the benefits that you get from an actual living culture because we don't have one. 
And so you have a lot of Americans who are adopting things from other cultures. There's a lot of, Britain is, is one of the beneficiaries, if that's the right word of that. There are a lot of people who are, who've been in trance for years, you know, British music, British literature, all this kind of stuff. You have people who are turning to Asian countries. They're looking for something that most human beings normally have, which is a viable culture, which provides them with, you know, certain aesthetic forms, certain... Um, certain ways to channel and direct creativity, certain modes of interaction, um, ways of understanding the world, the whole nine yards. It's a normal part of human existence. And what we have instead is manufactured by businesses to make a profit and changes constantly. So it doesn't have the stability. It doesn't have the all the various benefits that you get. There are regions of the United States that have some fragments of their old regional culture, and I, I expect as the corporate thing grinds to a halt for economic reasons, that that's where the, 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 the cultures of future North America are going to gradually start taking shape. But as it is, we've got a society here with 300 million people who are facing crisis with no with none of the usual resources. They don't have a government that can respond to it. They don't have a culture that gives them guidance. They, they don't have much of anything other than various businesses and, and various religions that might as well be businesses um, running around trying to tell them what to do so that the businesses and the religious groups and everyone else can make money off them. Mm. Well, what, as the political system continues to um, buckle, and uh -huh. uh, and collapse and we we see you know through an absence of culture or a breakdown of culture <clears throat> that um increases in all the sort of commensurate problems what worries me and we're already seeing this in the arena of politics and we've seen it mm -hmm. certainly in the new age sphere is uh -huh. the possibility of the rise of the charlatan uh, the guru the cult leader or the religious mm -hmm. opp opportunist uh, mm -hmm. who's there to take advantage of people looking for an answer uh, you know whether it's, mm -hmm. whether it's somebody genuinely trying to offer a viable way forward, people are for a, you know this opens the way for a lot of rather dark and sinister developments. I think oh, if, it, if it people does. aren't careful, very much so. And the spillover of that into the political sphere is, to my mind, the scariest thing of all, because when a political system becomes completely non-functional, people will accept tyranny rather than rather than anarchy. They will, mm -hmm. accept, they will accept a government that functions brutally rather than a government that doesn't function at all. Well, it's Hitler and the and, trains running on time all over again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And so you get, you, we, we face a situation where charismatic demagogues who can promise to make change happen can get a mass following. And back in, you know, in the wake of the Great Depression, we saw where that led. I don't think it's not even impossible. I don't think it's unlikely we'll see a fair amount of that in Europe as well as in the United States. I mean, the whole the whole mess with the Eurozone right now mm -hmm. is just begging for, you know, people with armbands. And I'm sure it will get them. Oh, you've already got, I mean, in uh, Greece and uh, Italy, you've basically got appointed um, technocrats running, the, you know, unelected people running the country. Yeah, they're, they're unelected. They, they, and they were appointed by foreign powers. Mm -hmm. Um and I think someone like Vladimir Putin, for example, I mean, I, I think he's basically a Russian nationalist. That's, that's what he's about. But a lot of people don't like him because he has gone in there, strong person, made things happen, uh, mm -hmm. got rid of his people who are not playing ball with him. And mm -hmm. he has actually made things 
you know, changed things. So again, I'm not approving of the guy or anything. I'm not particularly no. disapproving. I'm just observing that he's the type of politician that uh, that we may see more of in the future. I expect to see a lot like him. And uh, Putin had the, had the great advantage that um, he was in a position to to kind of pop Russia out of its previous role as you know. What, what, I mean, after after the after the Soviet Union collapsed, we had this flood of of American and European, especially British. Um, industrialists going in there, buying up everything for pennies on the dollar, reducing the country, frankly, to economic servitude mm. in the interests of the, of the West. Um, and Putin was, was able, um, for a variety of reasons, to reverse that. So he became very popular because more of Russia's wealth is staying home in Russia. Um, and, and of course, that's exactly the problem in Southern Europe right now. What nobody wants to talk about is the, is the number of EU initiatives that have funneled money out of the periphery into France and Germany. And because of that, because of that funding, that's why the whole periphery of Europe is going bankrupt. Well, Germany is doing fine. It's mm. in, in some of my recent posts, I've talked about it as a wealth pump, the basic mechanism of empire. Um, this, there, you know, uh, there are gimmicks you can do with with um, the monetary system, and they're being done, and, and all this kind of stuff that basically make the European project, a project for the benefit of certain countries and very much not to the benefit of many others. As that picks up, the temptation for somebody in Spain, somebody in Italy, somebody in choose your country, to do a Putin, mm. to take power, to um, break the economic ties with the EU, to, um, you know, to, to pursue economic autarky in place of this thing and probably do the usual thing of building up a large military and, and being bellicose towards the neighbors, that's going to be a very powerful temptation because if you do that, as just as Putin did, just as Hitler did in his time, you're going to get a lot of people on your side because suddenly they're not, have, they're not starving. Suddenly they've, they've got money because their money's not all going, not, not all being funneled off to somebody else. Yeah. Well, perhaps the ultimate manifestation of this sort of charismatic demagogue or sort of strong arm um, political leader weighing in and, and taking the reins would be, if we look took that on a global scale, would be the idea of the much touted one world government that uh, a lot of people maintain we're we're drifting towards or actually being behind the scenes has been actively driven towards. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the idea that in a world we're basically seeing the undoing of globalisation globalization in many ways in the changes that you've outlined in your books. So the idea that we could ever put into place. Uh, a, a functioning structure on a global scale that would somehow bring enough control over this process, this step-down process that we need to undergo as an industrial society, that that just wouldn't be viable. I know what we're seeing is a return to local and big structures that are actually more inefficient than the smaller so-called inefficient ones they were supposed to replace. The, the trends in the opposite direction. So I, I personally don't think so. we're ever going to get to this global government, you know, this benign dictatorship. No, the thing is, a one-world government would would be completely unmanageable. It could, it might, it might be, it might be maintained by military force for a brief period, but the costs of maintaining it would bankrupt it so fast. It's what usually happens to empires. It's what's happening to ours, to the United, mm. the United States Empire. It's what happened to the British Empire in its time. I mean, India at the time that Britain took it over was one of the richest countries in the world. By the time Britain finally left to go, it was one of the poorest. All that wealth was siphoned out to maintain the British Empire, and where is it now? Mm-hmm. 
and so the United States, similarly after the after the Second World War, you know, had its you know its, its network of bases around the world, its client states, all the money flowing into New York and Washington D.C. And now we can't afford to maintain it because you know all the money's gone. <laughs> empire is an expensive hobby. A mm-hmm. global empire would be would be catastrophically expensive. Nobody could afford to do it. No, ultimately, and, I, oh, I do apologize. No, Go ahead. Yeah, no, and so. And so, in fact, I think you're quite right. I think there are many large nations right now that will not be able to hold together, in the, possibly in the fairly near future. I'm not at all sure the United States is viable over the over the long or even the middle term. Well, you have lots of movements for um, secession, don't you? Basically, in, in the states. Yeah, we've, we've got we've got some. They're they're small now, but mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. As the as the economy continues to unravel, as the political system continues to sink into fossilized gridlock, um, you know that could well, be a very powerful thing. I think that Texas Governor Rick Perry may have mentioned the possibility of secession for Texas, but it would purely have been to grab some headlines and to try and portray him in whatever light he wanted to be portrayed in that week. But the what fact that, that he even used the word um, mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. You know. It is interesting. Texas, by the treaty under which Texas joined the Union, okay, um, Texas has the right either to secede or to break itself into five into five states to increase its total representation in Congress. Um, now, attempting to act on that treaty back in 1861 brought the predictable response. But mm. um, but the, but the thing is, it would it, it's not something that could happen the way things happened when we had our civil war. It's the kind of thing that would happen more like what happened when the Soviet Union fell apart. Mm-hmm. When yeah. you had the the entire central government just freeze up completely and become non-functional and go to bits. And then you might very well see, I don't imagine the country would separate into 50 different little countries, but I suspect it, could, it would break apart into maybe a dozen regional blocks. And for all I know, Rhode Island would decide that its future lay with becoming, you know, America's Monaco. <laughs> there well, might be some remarkable results. People might be thinking we were just discussing the breakup, potential breakup of uh, the EU as mm-hmm. first the peripheral countries, but then more of the key states of that union come under mm-hmm. enormous stress and they're almost forced out because it's the only way for them to get through. So, well, you know, that's all to do with the global financial crash and what have you, but like everything that happens on this planet, if you zoom out far enough or in, in, in enough detail, you can see that it's all linked to the energy situation ever, anyway. Very much so. so. Very much so. What we could be seeing happening in the EU now is just a, a you know a microcosm of of uh, you know the future. And as you point out in the book, um, if, you know for those people where we talked earlier about debunking the idea of an overnight collapse, not only are we likely to see grinding step down change as things unwind and unravel, but even though a change will be global, it will happen at different speeds in different areas, and there'll be different mm-hmm. extents of change in different regions of the world. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, by the way. That the EU, the the problems in the EU go right back to energy, and I can suggest to your readers one or your listeners one very fast way to check that out, which is to to notice that the countries that got hit hardest and fastest are the ones that import the most oil. Mm. That are most dependent on imported petroleum for their energy supplies. Greece is at the head of the list. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the more the more petroleum you have to import to run your economy, the more the, the the more quickly slapped you got by the financial crisis. And the driving force behind the crisis was the attempt to inflate the world economy with paper wealth 
to deal with the fact that it was no longer expanding in, in, in real terms due to the fact that we'd hit the, pla the oil plateau. <laughs> it is all very much connected. And so it's really important to look past the headlines. It's really important to look past the, the easy assumptions and the, um, the, the slogans, the thought stoppers that, every, that people use in place of thinking these days, and say, okay, what does this connect? Where does this, where does this connect to the other aspects of the crisis of our age? Because it is all one process, one pattern, just a mm. very complex one. Yes, exactly. And um, this is what Putin's all about uh, in Russia, actually. Um, you know, with regards to uh, keeping some of Russia's wealth for the Russians, that, that applies uh, first and foremost to energy. And we know mm -hmm. that uh, Russia's sitting on a lot of uh, natural resources, mm -hmm. energy resources. And mm -hmm. I've heard conversations on the media in recent times along the lines of you know, somewhat indignant European uh, people going, uh, you know, Western Europeans going, mm, but Russia has to sell us that gas. What do they mean they're not going to sell us any more gas this year? Well, you know, we, we depend on the gas. And Russians saying, this was on Russia Today, actually, I don't know if you ever um, mm -hmm. checked that channel out. It's a good antidote to the BBC. But uh, the, the Russian commentators say, well, we're using the gas ourselves. Well, you know, we're not sitting on it to spite you. But, you know, we need it. And we're going to see more of this in the future when, you know, this is what I said earlier about it's one form of localism. You know, if there's energy or any other resource locally, then... We saw that mm -hmm. with certain countries who, in recent years, have banned exports of grain and rice because their mm -hmm. own nations needed it first. So this is what I meant by the you know the unwinding of globalization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, again, we have that sense of entitlement. The, well, we need it, therefore you're obligated to sell it to us. No, they're not. Mm. You know that whole that whole middle class entitlement notion that we can have anything we want as long as we whine loud enough for it. It doesn't work that way. And the people in Russia, the people in China, the people in you know a hundred other countries around the world, are looking at the the you know amazingly extravagant lifestyles that are being lived by those of us in Western Europe and the United States and you know Anglo North America, and they're not impressed. And I suspect many of them see no reason to continue to live in poverty so that we can live in extravagant wealth. Hmm. You know, the, the, when, when you realize that America, up until very recently, the, the stats have turned down since then, up until very recently, the 5% of the world's population who lived in the United States used 25% of the world's energy resources and 33% of its raw materials and industrial product. Not, please note, because other people in the world didn't want these things because distortions in the global economy constant, you know, that, that follow from our global empire. I know it's not polite to use that word, but let us, let us please call a spade a spade. Um, that's come from our global empire um, have imposed these imbalances that, that funnel the world's wealth to this country, preferentially. Mm. As that comes apart, and it's just coming apart, you know, those of us in America and those of us in America's um, inner circle of allies, including Britain, of course, um, are going to have to make do with a lot less wealth. Well, cast, casting off into the future, as you do in the book, um, just to remind everyone it's the ecotechnic future. Um, you're basically saying, you know, the, the, the promised utopias of, of you know, the past, um, we're never going to see any of those and there's never been a utopia. But the future doesn't have to be like the road warrior it doesn't have no. to be uncultured. 
And it doesn't have to be without technology. It doesn't have to be without comfort. And you, you talk about a couple of concepts, um, that of scarcity, industrialism, basically a phase that we would go through, and then something leading to the, the age of salvage. And these are quite key points for mm -hmm. some of the futures that you're trying to envision. So perhaps you could say something about the stages of okay. those. Yeah. Um, basically, what the, the variety of industrialism that we've experienced over the last 300 years, um, it's not the only way to have a society with technology. And it's just one. It's a very wasteful way. And I refer to it as abundance industrialism. And that's, that's, you know, that's, think of what we have now, big factories using vast amounts of energy, um, largely a free market economic system, all these kinds of things. Um, that's, that's abundance industrialism. Scarcity industrialism is already coming to, coming to existence around us. It's an industrialism that is politically driven. Um, it involves resource nationalism. Um, Russia and China are in the forefront of transitioning to this, where Economics and energy are understood as political phenomena, and it's essentially political phenomena, not just accidentally. And the countries of the world are basically scrambling to see who can cling to the most, who can hang on to the most of these dwindling resources while they're still around. Because whoever has the largest concentration has a great deal of power over the rest of the world. So ultimately, it's a zero-sum game. Ultimately, it's going to lose. But over the next 50 or 100 years, I expect we're going to see it absolutely standard as things contract and get more difficult. Finally, you drop to the point that there aren't enough concentrated resources to maintain an industrial system at all. At that point, the single largest concentration of resources in the world consists of our wreckage, our trash, our ruins. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think for a thousand, a thousand years from now, people who want metal will not go digging in the ground. They'll go, you know, salvage an old ruin. They'll be t if you think of how much of a, you know, how long, how long a village blacksmith could keep going out of one good, you know, girder from a skyscraper. It's very mm -hmm. good steel, much better than you're going to make at home. Easy to smelt, easy to recycle. Chop it up with with saws and chisels, hammer it into shape. Um, so that's, the sal that's, that's kind of the extreme form of the salvage age. We're already getting some elements of that, um, you know, in the United States at least. There's a, there's a thriving economy in breaking into empty houses put up during the housing boom and stripping it of all the copper and all the aluminum mm. because they're worth, they're worth um, a, a noticeable amount of money. And so that's, that's the salvage economy. Um, and that could keep going for a very long time. And in, in that age, the countries that have the most ruins, that have the most trash, the most lavishly stocked landfills, are going to be in fairly good shape. You know, the United States or whatever countries exist here when it falls apart um, are likely to be very well suited to that, to that era. And then finally, as the salvage runs down, finally, as the legacies of the, of, of the, the age of abundance industrialism trickle away, there comes the point at which we can start really coming up with a technology based on the resources that we have over the long term, over, the, over what's actually sustainable. And that's what I refer to as an ecotechnic society. It's not going to be economically viable before then. You know, people can, people can you know, have their solar houses, and in fact, it would be a good idea, and there are sheltered houses, and there are their windmills, and their solar water heater systems, and so on. All of these are important steps, but a whole society running on that kind of basis will only happen when there are no other options that are more economically feasible. Yeah. And that'll happen when it happens. I'm guessing it'll be hundreds of years from now, when we've worked through all the salvage, when we're down to 
the metal that we can get, keep constantly recycled or get from, from um, bog iron, where it's concentrated biologically. And sun and wind and water are they, and, and muscle are the only energies we've got, the only energy sources we've got. But we have, if we're smart, if we're lucky, enough knowledge of science and technology preserved from the past that we can begin building more sophisticated ways to work with these things than our ancestors had. So, you know, so we'll have the solar water heater systems. So we'll have the wind turbines. A little bit of electricity goes a long way. So we'll have potentially a very comfortable world. Um, just it'll be a lot less populated than this one is. It will have gone through some very rough times in the meantime. But you know, as, as we can look back at, at many cultures in the past that had a lot less energy and a lot fewer resources than we have now. Many of them produced great civilizations, um, were, were golden ages of literature and the arts, had many comforts and many conveniences of their own. Just they weren't burning vast amounts of fossil fuels to get them. Yeah, we mentioned earlier about um, just to use examples from popular culture, which is something, again, a lot of people can identify with them. And it helps them to understand concepts, but that we didn't think the future was going to be like the road warrior. But if you actually look at that uh, scenario, that fictional scenario of a, of a societal collapse into brutal survivalism, um, where that sequence of stories ended up was in a place which looked a lot like an eco-technic society. If you think about uh, Mad Max 3 beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, the, the, the very first draft. It's the whole series. I mean, the first, the first movie was set in a decaying industrial society. You still had ordinary cars, and there were still some fragments of law and order, all these kind of things, and you saw that disintegrate. You went through the second one, which was complete chaos and violence, and the third one you have, you know, methane from pig feces, mm. starting to become the basis of an energy system. You have the beginning of the coalescing of new social forms and so on. That's it, it, you know, that, that's the way things happen. It's not just, you know, down into the darkness forever. It's, you know, contraction, well, disintegration, decline, stabilization, recovery, and the creation of new forms. Not, not rebuilding the old one. I mean, the Middle Ages were not the same as the Roman world, mm. but they were not as you know, unremittingly brutal and bleak as, as you know, the, the myth of progress likes to portray them. When you were talking about salvage already becoming part of um, whether it's criminal theft or whether it's you know people you know, industries turning around saying you know what we're not going to throw that stuff out after all we're going to reuse it that already beginning I mean mm -hmm. I've lived through I've always been a bit of a, a car fan I must say you know it's probably my guilty pleasure is having a car but <laughs> I went through through my lifetime it's gone from position when I started to drive in the 1980s it was common in you know, country parts in, in Ireland for people to, guys could make either a good second living or a complete living, what we call breakers. And they took mm -hmm. old cars and took them apart for, pay, for, you know, for parts and sold the parts mm -hmm. that were still viable. Mm -hmm. Then got to a situation where as recently as five or six years ago, if you had a car that no longer worked and you wanted to get rid of it, you could either dump it somewhere, which was illegal and you could get prosecuted, or mm -hmm. you, you had to pay someone to come and take it away. You know, a guy... <laughs> If the a breaker would come out and say, yeah, okay, I'll take it in my truck, you know, give me a hundred bucks. Now that's changed back again. They start to see signs all over the place now on at traffic intersections and what have you, you know, scrap cars, you know, a hundred dollars paid. So yeah, right yeah. there, we're, and that's partly to do with the value of metal going up. But suddenly mm -hmm. it's like, we can't afford to just take these things and just throw them a big heap anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. so it's already beginning, you know. Yeah. 
Yes, and, and one very important thing to remember about the scenario, that if, if we can kind of wrap up with that, one very important thing to remember about the scenario that I've traced out is that it's not... It's it's not a bunk bunk bunk. Each of these states, um, you know, takes X number of years, and then there's this sudden transition. All of these things are already happening. Mm-hmm. We're in a situation where there's the, the the sort of last hurrah of abundance industrialism is gradually trickling away, and scarcity industrialism is rising, and the beginnings of the salvage economy are getting well underway. And here and there, you have the first sparks of of the ecotechnic technologies that are going to be the basis of the far future. And so it's this sort of onward jumble of process that, that eventually, well, like, you know, like any ecological change, like any change in an ecosystem, it's not all at once. It happens gradually. Well, yes, perhaps certainly is um, time for us to wrap up for this time. And um, obviously, if people want, really want to explore the depth of what you get into in the ecotechnic future, they need to get themselves a copy of that. I would um, certainly love it if they got themselves <laughs> a copy of it. Buy, buy several, give them to your friends and family. I'd like to just mention at the end, a concept that comes in towards the end of the book, which is mm-hmm. the idea of, as well as planning somewhat for the future, as much as we can for an uncertain future, to, for, for us to start to take responsibility for preserving something for the future. Because without mm-hmm. culture and without mm-hmm. our humanity, then we just mm-hmm. do have a rude warrior scenario and no one wants that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I love the idea of your idea of conservers, cultural conservers, mm-hmm. who would cultural conservers. take something of what makes you know, even the bad parts of our society, what makes us human, what what, what mm-hmm. defines our age, the good stuff, you know, the literature, the music, you pointed out that Roman music all but disappeared. Yeah, and we have we have 25 seconds of one song. That's mm-hmm. what we got of Roman music. A musical culture probably as complex as the one we have now. That's all that's left. It would be really awful when we get to the, you know, to, to the to the ecotechnic renaissance of the, of the 31st century, let's say, if all that survives of modern Western music is 25 seconds of one Beatles tune. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. It puts yeah. me in mind of one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in cinema, which mm-hmm. is at the end of the film version of Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. which basically is a, is a film about book burning and you know the, mm-hmm. the banning of literature. And the closing scene shows a, a few people walking around in this beautiful sort of rural location and they're all talking to themselves and what they're doing is they're reciting their books the and books, e- yes. e- each one of them has taken it upon themselves to memorize every single word of a book and they're living mm-hmm. books and it's just this beautiful idea that mm-hmm. I just like to, I thought I'd like to you know, leave people mm-hmm. with that, that, that we can do something. I, I, would, I, I would encourage any of our listeners for whom this strikes a chord to Think about what is the thing that you really desperately want to see passed on in the future. What is the thing that you know? If you if you were to look in the future and find that X wasn't was gone, gone forever, lost forever, that that would make something in you die inside. Okay, choose that thing and say, what can I do to make this last? What can I do to pass this on? Because that's how these things happen. That's how things get preserved. Because individuals take the responsibility to make it happen. And it could be something grand like, like you know, a work of literature. It could be something really silly. It doesn't matter. I mean, we need silliness. We, have, we fortunately have some of the works of the great Roman satirists, and they will still make you roll on the floor. So, you know, if, if preserving the works of Monty Python is your great passion, by all means. But, you know, look at, look at what there is out there 
that really matters to you and say, what can I do to make this, to keep this alive, to keep this going, because nobody else is going to do it for you. And that's, those last words are the things that I would really like to leave everybody with. Nobody else is going to take care of this for you. Nobody else is going to solve these problems. Nobody else is going to face these future, this future. Nobody's going to do it but you. And if you don't do it, you know, what does that leave? Well, that's a very positive note, I think, on which to end. So, once again, John Michael Greer, thank you very, very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're welcome. Well, that's it for another time. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to check out John's blog at thearchdruidreport.blogspot.com and, of course, his books, including The Ecotechnic Future and The Long Descent, are available at Amazon and all worthy outlets. said it before, I'll say it again. The end of the industrial age has begun and the world as we know it is almost over. The only thing that awaits us in the future is the future we make. And that is up to us. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.